Welcome to the Limerick Voice Podcasts, brought to you by the Limerick Voice and presented by me, Ivan Smith. Today I'm joined by breast cancer survivor, Karen Sugru. She shares her experience of receiving a cancer diagnosis during the first lockdown and the importance of checking your body for lumps. First of all, Karen, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, Ivan. So first of all, we may as well get straight into it. It's been a, a tough time for a lot of people during the pandemic, but I suppose it's made even tougher when you got the news that you did back last April. Yeah, um, <laughs> it, it was the most incredible time, I, I think, for, for everybody. If it, We're coming up in a year now when the virus started really impacting on all of our lives I think that the big the first lockdown happened on March 16th or March 17th last year so that was the start really of of a, a kind of a cascade of very difficult things that happened to me within a very short period of time so within kind of a, a month um, the, the the pandemic had hit Ireland lockdown had happened a personal issue exploded in my life and then I also found a, a lump in my breast so it was <laughs> It was really the most phenomenal four-week period that anybody could have. <laughs> yeah, we were all getting used to it at that time, and you're thinking it'll only it'll only go on for a few weeks. But that's right, that's right. Yeah, and here we are a year later. Why were we wrong? Yeah. How did first of all, how did you go about discovering the lump? I am one of those people who, well, I I would never get cancer. You know, so I never checked ever, ever, ever. There is no history of cancer in my family. I don't have any of the risk factors. And also I just felt uh, that I was not a person that was going to ever get cancer. So I never checked and I never did anything. In spite of seeing all of the warnings that you see everywhere, I just never did. So when I found the lump, it was by complete accident. I was falling asleep one night. My, as you sometimes, I, I jump like a lot of people when I fall asleep. I get a, a, a little jump and my finger twitched. And as I fell asleep, and I felt the lump. And that's how I found it. So it was by sheer luck. And I felt, I mean, that, that piece of luck um, is the reason that I'm sitting here well and recovered. Because had I not felt it and had I let it go on any longer, my outcome would have been completely different. So I feel from the get-go that I was extraordinarily lucky. And I, I really have all the time been trying to share that look by reminding people to, to check. So you do find the lump. How long does it take then once you discover that you have cancer to start receiving treatment? So this is, I mean, a year ago, I knew none of these things and was happy not to know any of these things. But I think it's useful to know, particularly during the pandemic, because when I found the lump first, my first reaction was, well, obviously it's nothing. It's a pandemic. Am I even allowed to contact my doctor? I didn't know really how to go about it. What would I do? And I said to myself, nah, I'm just going to leave it. Um, it's too much hassle, I felt, because there's so much going on. And I, you know, it's all everyone was so stressed. And I just thought, no, I'm just going to leave it. But I, I casually mentioned it to a friend and she was like, uh, no, you will go on because this was a Friday night. She said, you will go Monday morning and you will ring your doctor and you will find you will get him to check this. So that's what I did. And I, and I think that a lot of people, in fact, I know that a lot of people are not going to their doctor. And that's another reason that I am. Um, talking about this because my extraordinary good luck didn't just end with finding it in that way 
I went to my GP at nine o'clock on the Monday morning. So I found it, found the lump on the Friday. I went to the GP at nine o'clock on the Monday morning. Nine o'clock on the Tuesday morning, I was out in the breast clinic. By 11 o'clock that morning, I knew that I had cancer. And two weeks later, I was sitting in the chair getting my first chemotherapy. So it was unbelievably quick in, in terms of how it all happened. But that's because... I was so lucky. Part of my luck was that at that time, people were not going to their doctor and they were not getting things checked. So when I went in, I was seen, I was, I was seen straight away. I was then sent for all of the scans. I didn't have to wait. I literally walked in, got my scan. The team were not as busy as they would usually be because people weren't going and getting checked. So for a million reasons to do with enormous good luck, I got through the system extremely quickly. And I think I probably broke some kind of world record getting between finding the lump and sitting in the chair, getting the chemo was 26 days from start to finish. So my luck was brought about simply because other people weren't at that time checking and going. And that's another reason that I really, really wanted to talk about this a lot and make sure that people are going and getting through the system. And also that they know that if, you know, before all of this, I, I thought cancer, the word cancer was just meant death, you know, instant death. And there was no, and what I've, what I've learned since is that there is as many cancers as there are colds and flus and types of, of other illnesses. And that I also thought there was cancer as one thing and you either you had it in different places and I have found out that that is not the case and I <laughs> any any medical person listening to me now will be rolling their eyes and clawing at their hair but I think that people don't understand that as well and that an awful lot depends on where your cancer is what kind of cancer it is and how quickly you treat you catch it so the sooner you go in regardless of what you have the sooner you go in the better your outcome and that is particularly the case for cancers like breast cancer, testicular cancer, but it is the case across the board. You do have qualifications as well. You work in LIT and you are a psychotherapist. Do those things help when you're in that situation or do you start to almost overthink things? Well, what was, for me, what I, I was interested in my reaction, because I'm a social researcher, so I, I initially, I, initially I, I lecture in sociology in, in Limerick IT as well as psychotherapy. And my initial training and my original training was sociology and social research. So my usually, if in life, when I have encountered something, my first reaction is to go research everything. And fear stopped me this time. So I googled nothing. I researched nothing. I was quite simply too afraid to. And I, to this very day, it, it's something that served me well, because actually Google is not the place to go <laughs> for, for medical stuff. So my reaction to it was simply, very simply, that I would go to the doctor and I would follow every single instruction they gave me. And that is exactly what I've done. And that is why, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm well, I'm about to go back to work. So has my training helped? Yes, in two ways. Not the research way, which is what I would have expected, but my focus straight away was two things. First of all, I was very aware of, as a feminist, as an intersectional feminist, I was very aware of my personal look. So I am a white middle-class privileged person and all of the advantages that that gave me is one of the reasons that I'm sitting here so well and it made me hugely aware 
of the number of people who are out there who would not have had my privilege and who would not have my outcome. So women and, and men and people across the board who found symptoms or things that they were worried about, they may not have been able to go to a doctor within two days of finding it. They may not have been able to go to get themselves to a breast clinic or a clinic. They may not have been had the wherewithal to go into all of the appointments because there is a huge number of appointments to go to. For example, the oncology team won't take you unless you've managed to get yourself an emergency dental appointment. These are things that I didn't know. Um, Getting yourself an emergency dental appointment can be quite a thing, particularly in the middle of a global pandemic. So these are small details that I never knew before I was involved in all of this, but are literally life or death and have everything to do with the resources that you have. So For example, my children are old enough that I had, and and my mom is local. So I was able to get somebody to mind my kids or sit with my kids while I went to appointments. That's not something that everybody would have. There are women in situations that may not have been able to go and get, and people in situations of potentially abuse or stressful situations, crisis situations, who wouldn't have been able to go to all of those appointments and access everything as quickly as I did. There are women in and people within the traveling community who, who may not have been able to get appointments, access appointments. Ethnicity is a huge, huge issue in Ireland around health outcomes. And it's something that I have thought about an enormous amount over the last year as I recovered. I'm very, very aware that there were people out there who may have experienced similar things to me at that time who won't be where I am today. I think particularly around women in direct provision centres and whether they would be able to get the kind of treatment that I got as quickly as I got. I imagine women in Naklashim, how would they get themselves in and out to the appointments? At a minimum, how would they? And then I was thinking a lot about them during my chemo. So I was in a position to, my my employers were exceptional, you know, they they really supported me in every way. So I was able to take a lot of time off. I had a lot of space. I could be ill and unwell in in a very comfortable space, in a very private space. And I thought a lot about women and people in direct provision at that time who may not have had the space to, to be ill and unwell in a private setting, who may not and who would not have access to cooking facilities so that they could cook themselves something comforting because you need comfort. And so, you know, yeah, like you, you start, your first question was, yeah, I did have a shitty time. There's no question about it. But my shitty time as a privileged twice person in Ireland was very, very, very much less shitty than many people out there who do not have the resources and privilege that I had. And that is what I think about. So I actually think I had a very easy time. You've made a lot of interesting points there. How do you tell the people around you then that you're in this situation? Well, I suppose to to address the other piece of my training would be the psychotherapy piece. And we'd be very clear in psychotherapy. You you have to, the training would teach us to, to share And so it's very, very difficult. I mean, there's no question about it. There is a two week after you you get told on the day, yeah, listen, it's cancer. They then send you away for two weeks. You get all the scans. And in my situation, I was told, yeah, listen, it's cancer and it's spread. You're in trouble. We don't know what kind of cancer. We don't know how far it's spread. And come back to us for 
couple of scans over the next two weeks. And in two weeks time, you'll come back in and we'll have, we'll have an answer for you. So in that two week period, which as I understand it, everybody who goes through this has this two week period of waiting. In that two week period, you, you literally don't know what you're facing. You could be facing an easy thing. You could be facing a terminal diagnosis. Um, you, you literally don't know what you're facing. So it's, it's, that piece of it all was the most difficult piece for me. So what I, and my reaction as a person was to tell nobody, say nothing, because if you say it, it's real. If you speak it, words make things real. And I did not want that to be real. <laughs> it was such a shock and I did not want it to be real, but I suppose that's where the training kicked in. And I know that it is enormously hurtful and difficult for loved ones if they're excluded from a difficult thing. People, you know, people want to be there for you. And that's one of the things that I've learned this year. I have been utterly humbled by the amount of people who have been kind to me over the last year. My God. Uh, and I suppose that to, to answer your question, how do you tell people? You just tell them. And, and it's very hard. Oh, my God, is it very hard to text your mom? and and to tell her or to text your siblings very hard to tell your children and your friends you know it's it's there's no way around it but if if it is possible for you to do that then what comes back is so reassuring and I think again with the training but we'd always be told or we'd always be trained that if you know if you can manage to be vulnerable with somebody then that really allays the fears but getting yourself to the place where you're, you're vulnerable is, is hugely difficult. So, you know, my reaction would always be to armor up. I'm fine. I'd be aggressively fine. You know, how are you to take care? Fine. Totally fine. Listen, cancer diagnosis is fine. You know, it's grand. Um, but one day, uh, I, you know, I was feeling very fearful. And I mean, fear is the big thing, but I was feeling very fearful. And my sister messaged me and she said, how are you? And I just, in that moment of fear, replied, terrified. And she and everybody up to that, to that point had been, you know, full of reassurance. They'd all been researching madly. And they said, you know, the stats are this and the stats are that. And you're totally going to be fine. And it's all this. It's going to be easy. And, and I was like, yeah, totally. I'm going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. But in that moment, I said I was terrified. And then she got back to me and she said she was terrified, too. And it's funny that that was the most reassuring thing of all, just to share my terror with somebody else who was also terrified made both of us less terrified. So that probably is the piece of the training that has helped me most. I've seen you've written about this in the recent past as well. You yeah. described those two weeks as Schrodinger's cancer. Could you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, well, I should I should add that my brother is a physicist and he trained out well actually and he is very cross every time I use mention Schrodinger because apparently I am not getting the analogy right because I don't understand the actual science behind it so apologies to any science student or staff person who's listening to this but what I meant was in the very kind of I suppose the the general usage of it in that two weeks, you have all the diagnosis and no diagnosis. You are you are both the cat <laughs> that is alive and a cat that, that is dead because you don't know what's coming your way. 
you don't know, are you, you don't know what you're facing. You don't know what you're facing in, in terms of treatment. Is it going to be um, a simple operation? Is it going to be chemo operation, radiation? Are you looking at a curative thing? Are you looking at five years? Are you looking at, you know, what's your life expectancy? Are you going to die? You, you just, you, it is all the things. And that would probably be the longest two weeks of my life waiting, waiting to find out what I was, what I was facing at that point. So that's what I meant by that. You come through then, you go through all your treatments and you manage to come out the other side. Could you describe what the treatment is like, especially during COVID when there's more restrictions in terms of who can be there? Yeah, um, I suppose the biggest thing is that for me, I made the decision straight away that I wouldn't bring anybody in with me. Obviously, during lockdown one, it wasn't even an issue. I wasn't allowed so you go, you have to go into your appointments on your own. Now, that's very, very difficult, particularly at the start when you're getting very difficult news. It's difficult to be there on your own. That would probably be the biggest thing in terms of the impact of the pandemic is going into all of those places on your own. The other thing would be around being immune compromised during chemo. So at the start, there was no, the, the, the Irish Cancer Society and the doctors, they had no advice because look, we were all learning at the same time. So they had no advice. So one of the biggest problems was I was told not that I wouldn't be able to see my kids for six months. And um, because I'd be immune compromised and it was a very difficult decision because I thought, well, I can't isolate them from the world because I was worried about their mental health. And I, I wondered how and I, I, I didn't know where I was going to stay. I didn't want to put my mum at risk either because, of course, I was in and out of hospital. And so that particular time was very difficult in terms of knowing the right thing to do in the absence of guidelines. Now, enough time has passed now that there are guidelines, but there is also the wonderful, you know, at that time, we, we didn't know was there going to be several years without a vaccine. We didn't know there was no, no, no rapid tests at the start. But now it's all changed. There are rapid tests. The vaccinations are coming down the line. Everything has changed. So those things that I would have experienced and a lot of people experienced at the start, they're not the case anymore. And I suppose really the biggest thing for me is, is that the situation with cancer is extremely hopeful. There's not a lot. There tends to be a lot of terribly fearful narratives out there and, and a lot of trauma porn where you know people have gone through terrible situations and they talk about and that's and, and of course people need to talk about it but I think that that I worry that that makes people too fearful to go and and get um to access help so one of the things that I really like to do is I like to talk about how hopeful it is and how important it is that we talk about the excellent outcomes there are for people once you go and you 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 get tested a lot of people are so terrified when they think that something is wrong that they that it stops them acting and that's the real problem the the biggest thing that i would say about it all is no matter when it is no matter what is happening you must act straight away and then follow everything that you're given and then you're going to be sitting there six months down the line recovered and that's the piece, that's the hopeful piece that I feel is the most important thing. And, and I, you know, I, I knew you and I would be talking. So one of the things that I really wanted to raise was around students. And I'm, I've worked with students in LIT for the last 18 years. And, and I was a student myself in UL for many years. And 
you know, the, the, the situation now during lockdown is extraordinarily difficult, but it is always quite difficult for students to know where and how to access supports, medical supports, be it physical supports um, or psychological supports. So students, particularly now during lockdown, are, are going through quite a, a, an enormously difficult time. Um, in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health, how do they access supports? What's the right thing? So I've often thought about, okay, I'm well-established in Limerick. I have my GP. I, so I was able to know where to go. And another group, another cohort that I have worried about a lot over the last year are students. So if there was a student who found, found themselves at any point in the last year in the same boat as me, a lump or a, a symptom that they were worried about, who would they go to? How would they access help? Would they go to the college doctors? When are the college doctors available? Then where do they get referred to? Would they be able to, in, if, in my case, if they were away from home, say, and they got the scenario that I've outlined, would they be able to get an emergency dental appointment so that they could access their oncology and so on and so on and so on. So students are a very, very vulnerable cohort. And that's not even to start talking about mental health supports, which across the board are dreadful in Ireland. And in terms of students who I think are a particularly vulnerable cohort, it's something that we really, really need to talk about. And it is something that I worry about an awful lot for students. And I can't remember what your question was, but I think I've really got off to a tangent there. I'm really sorry. Oh, that's okay. Um, you mentioned there about <laughs> being away from your children for mm. six months. That must that must be difficult trying to arrange that for them and try and keep in contact with them. Yeah, it was, but I didn't do it. I couldn't. So I, I decided at the time. Now, again, I mentioned at the very start that I had a lot of pieces of extraordinary good luck. And one of the pieces of good luck was that as I started treatment, it was going into the summer. And as you know, in the summer, the, the numbers dropped a lot. So I took a calculated risk and I, I didn't move out and I didn't separate from my kids. I, I felt that the numbers were very low. I felt that if we were careful and cautious and we did lots of all, all the things that, you know, the frontline workers were doing themselves with their own families, I decided to take the risk. I thought that it would be too detrimental to their mental health to in the middle of a pandemic their mom gets cancer and then she disappears off somewhere and they can't see her I, I really thought that was something that I just couldn't couldn't do but that was my choice to make not everybody you know and I, I, I suppose anytime I talk about any of this I, I'm really clear that I had choices to make myself and I made them and but they're not everybody's choices and not everybody would have my resources either and my look and my privilege so I'm always afraid that I'll say something when I'm talking about this that will make somebody else, you know, feel negatively about a decision they made. And that's not that's not what I want. But I do think that I, I do feel very lucky that I made that decision that it worked out for me. I didn't have any infections. I didn't miss any of my chemo rounds and that I was able to do it without any breaks or any any setbacks. Yeah, I think one of the things that you mentioned a lot is mental health. And I think moving yeah. them away is probably it's almost you can't really win in that situation but at the same time it's very important that we all look after ourselves I was going to ask then when did you discover that you were all clear but was it a simple process or were there were there bumps in the road during the treatment where you were thinking you wouldn't get clear well um 
for me, they told me, so at the end of my two, that two horrible two weeks at the start, they said to me, um, look, they said, you know, here's what you're looking at. You're looking at uh, chemotherapy, surgery and radiation. But they said that they were very, very hopeful that the type of cancer that I had would respond very well, very quickly, and that I would, it was curative. Those were the words that they use. They are very, 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 you know, they're, they're, there's, you're in, they're medical people. So what you want to be told by these people is, no, you're totally fine and you'll be grand. Uh, but they don't use language like that, unfortunately. They, but they do say, in my case, they said, I remember they said the word curative. And I tell you, I latched onto that in my brain, like, a life, a life raft. So, and, and that is how it, because there was no, I was really lucky there was no setbacks. So I had the chemo, I finished the chemo in September. In October, there was, it was really, really touch and go with regard to the, the, the surgery. I managed to get in just before the autumn lockdown. And I know that in the days coming up to it, I was petrified, not about the surgery. I was petrified that I wouldn't get in on time because they had told me that um, there was a chance that they would have to cancel because of the lockdown. So I got in, I think, maybe one day or two days before the lockdown. So I was extremely lucky and I got that done. So in terms of being told you're in the all clear, when I woke up from the surgery, my surgeon was there and she said, you're cancer free now. That was a great day. Um, and so I've been cancer free ever since. And then in I had the radiation just coming up to Christmas. I finished my final radiation on Christmas Eve. How about that for a Christmas present? And they sent me off on my way and they just said, look, you'll be tired for a while now. But when better would you sleep except over Christmas? And and actually, as I feel, uh, when better to have cancer than during a global pandemic when nobody's doing anything anyway so I was bald at a time where I wasn't missing anything and I, I you know as my friends are always telling me that by the time we are able to go out again to pubs my hair will be back so uh, as far as I'm concerned I, I have been unbelievably lucky in a million different ways. Certainly but uh, it's, it's just it's one of those where you always seem to find the positive out of a negative situation how has that helped you then with the pandemic? How have you managed outside that? Because I imagine you must have to mind yourself even more than the average person. You know, thankfully now I'm, I'm not immune compromised anymore, but there was about eight months there where I was. So I found it very, very lonely. I found it very a very, very lonely time. Um, but the thing is, and this is, and I've thought a lot about this, and I think I think the thing is that everybody is thinking a lot about this at the moment. It's, I'm not exceptional in that way. We have, as a, as a, in the world, the species gone through a life-changing, game-changing experience with this, this pandemic. There isn't one of us on earth, really, who are not impacted by this. And it has changed everything, really. And it has given us, it has stopped us in our tracks. Before this, loneliness was a pandemic we know that the world health organization named it as a pandemic i think in 17 and mental health issues and mental health distress has been at epidemic proportions for the last five or six years longer really depending on how you measure it so 
And I was always struck when I was in LIT, and I'm sure the same in, in UL, but groups of students would all, I noticed that they would sit around the table and there might be 10 students at a table, but each of them would be sitting with their phones. And, and listen, I'm the same. I mean, there was groups of staff doing it and I was there too, looking at my phone, you know, so I'm, it's not a judgment thing. It was an observational thing. We were all living lives, I, I think, potentially unsustainable in terms of our lack of connection. And there's something about the global pandemic that has really called us, to called our attention to the lack of pandemic, or to the lack of connection, sorry. Uh, you know, we're, we're told we have to sit in and not see anybody to keep them safe. And, and that is as it should be. And each of us are yearning to meet people, to connect with them, to, you know, to hug them. It's really simple. And I think in the last year, it has really, it has really simplified things. Um, what's important, what's not important. And I think that there isn't one of us that's going to come out of this without a change of perspective. So, yeah, you know, I had the additional piece of uh, cancer diagnosis in the middle of it. But I think that the outcome in terms of my thinking is probably going to be very similar to the outcome in terms of everybody's thinking. You know, it sharpens your focus and it, you, you, you find out what's important. You reflect on how you want to live your life. And you reflect on, and, and the thing is, you know, obviously it was a life or death situation for me, but it's been a life or death situation for everybody. Um, you know, we, we, we don't know why some people get very severe COVID and some people don't. And we don't know which of us is going to get that immune compromised or not. I mean, for every immune compromised person who, who got serious COVID, the doctors in the hospital would tell me about an equal number of immune compromised people who got COVID and barely knew they had it. So we don't know who will get it or why. And there is a real metaphor for, for how to live life, an existential metaphor in that. It's a reminder about how we've been living our lives and how we want to live our lives. What's important? What comes next? But when I, you know, in those couple of weeks where, where I thought I was going to die last year, I had a very strong sense of, you know, have I done the things that I want to do and what what do I want to have done? And I think that this global pandemic is probably asking us all to have a think about that. You know, what do we want to do? How do we want to spend our time and our days? Um, and I think everybody's been asked that question and everyone is asking themselves that question. And again, I can't remember what you asked me. Does that answer it? <laughs> Sorry. You no, know, definitely, you definitely have answered it and more. Finally, I just want, I think it would be rather powerful just to hear from you on what should people do? Or what advice would you give to people who are either receiving treatment or who are worried about going in to get it? Ooh, so first of all, I've, I, I try to avoid giving advice of any description because um, everybody's experience is different. Everybody's situation is different. Um, the stuff that was helpful for me mightn't be helpful for somebody else for a million different reasons. I mean, the biggest thing is get checked. If you have any worries at all, absolutely get checked. Go and find, um, get, get advice and go and follow it up. And then once you go to your doctor, follow their advice, because there is such a lot of phases to it all. And then once you get your, your doctor's advice, follow that advice. Um, 
I, I think the, the story that we the stories that we tell ourselves are extremely important. And we can tell ourselves stories about being unlucky, or we can tell ourselves stories about being lucky, or we can tell ourselves, you know, so I think the story we tell ourselves is extremely important. And I think that, you know, I think that one of the things pre-COVID that I certainly had a sense of is that, you know, heroism was a very particular thing and that people had to achieve an enormous amount to be heroes. And one of the biggest things I think for me, the learnings of the last year has been that the real heroism that lies in very, I'm not going to call it small things, but simple things like just turning up every day for the people in your life. It can be really hard. I mean, it can be really hard to get out of bed some days. Um, it can be really hard to get dressed. It can be really hard to shower, you know. Um, it can be really hard to homeschool, my God, you know, shout out to everyone who's homeschooling because it is hell. And teachers are, uh, teachers are heroes. They are the unsung heroes of the world. Um, so I think you, you said to me, do I have any advice? I really don't. I really don't accept that. I think that we need to cut ourselves some slack and, and reward ourselves and be proud of ourselves for the small stuff. Like it's great if we get out of bed. It's great if we get dressed. If, we, if we're able to sit with the people in our lives and, and just hear how they're feeling of a given day, then that's a win. For me, I used to feel with my kids that I had to be, you know, I'd be beating myself up endlessly if I didn't be, you know, bringing them to this after school thing and that after school thing and, and you know, encouraging them to do all sorts. And now I'm, you know, at the end of the day, if, if we've eaten <laughs> and they're alive and we have a bit of a chat there, that's my benchmark now for a successful day. Like, are we all there? Have we chatted? If we have then I'm like yep yeah, that's good and, and I suppose I suppose that's it maybe if I if I condense it down do I have any advice maybe we just need to uh, lower our expectations for ourselves and be okay with whatever piece we're able for any day um, and some days we won't be able for anything and and that's okay too. In fairness that is perfectly sums up what you've been trying to say during this whole interview. Finally my thanks to you Karen for joining me today it's been a privilege to have you on. Thank you so much for inviting me, Ivan. Thank you for listening to the Limerick Voice podcast. We have lots more great content lined up, so keep an eye out. Remember, when Limerick speaks, we listen.